Good morning. Good morning, Your Honors. Charles Spivak, Your Honor, on behalf of Travelers Property Casualty Company of America, may it please the court. Your Honors, the district court erred as a matter of law in this case by deciding it could treat a large portion of Cisco's infringement complaint against Dexon as mere surplusage and then conclude that its rewritten complaint triggered a duty to defend under the traveler's policy. This is something the courts cannot do. They cannot determine an insurer's duty to defend on the basis of what a complaint could have said. The determination is made on the basis of the complaint as pled. Do you disagree with the matters outside the pleading that the, that the district court considered? <coughs> I do. Carefully defined and then considered? The matters outside the pleadings that the district court considered were Dexon's denial that those matters, in fact, in the original Cisco complaint were true. So as to Dexon's contention, this extrinsic evidence. But I think it was much more than that. I don't think so, Your Honor. I think the only extrinsic evidence that's referenced with regard to the determination of the duty to defend is Dexon's contention that it communicated to travelers its denial. You do not appeal what the district court said it was considering from outside the pleading. Oh, we are, Your Honor. We're saying that what the district court considered outside the pleadings. That has to be an issue on appeal. I didn't see it in the issues on appeal. It's embodied in the idea, Your Honor, that the district court considered. I think if you're asking, did we have to specifically appeal the consideration of extrinsic evidence? We specifically appealed the district court's determination that travelers had a duty to defend. And it did so on the basis of separate enumerated errors. I think you're a little shy on your FRAP research in terms of what the requirement that you state the issues presented requires. I would say, Your Honor, that all the issues on which the district court ruled against travelers, because this was a 12B6 motion, are embodied in our appeal of the judgment that was entered against it. And the district court did not, in fact, only base its order on the basis of extrinsic evidence. And since we're talking about extrinsic evidence, let's make clear the error. No, no. We're not talking about extrinsic evidence. We're talking about matters outside the pleading, which is a carefully developed Rule 12 concept. All right. Now I understand what the court is saying. So, yes, we did appeal the concept that Dexon interjected in connection with the Rule 12 argument its contention that it communicated to travelers its denial that it engaged in pre-retroactive date wrongful acts and that this extrinsic evidence somehow created a duty to defend. And our position on this is twofold. First, it shouldn't have been considered because Minnesota law is equally clear that extrinsic evidence can only be used to influence a duty to defend determination where the extrinsic evidence is undisputed and insured cannot read out of a complaint an allegation taking the complaint outside of coverage simply by asserting that allegation isn't true. And that is clearly stated by the Minnesota Supreme Court in the Meadowbrook decision at 559 Northwest 2nd at 419 Note 19. But secondly, this arose in connection with the argument that this case couldn't be decided on the basis of a Rule 12b6 motion because extrinsic evidence had to be considered. And we very definitely have preserved and argued the idea that this case is particularly well suited to resolution on a Rule 12b6. 
The duty to defend is a question of law involving a comparison of the complaint as pled to the insurance policy as written. That's this court's pronouncement in Bethel versus Darwin Select in 2013. And our brief contains two full pages of case law holding that this rule is equally applicable to the question of relatedness, which is present in this case, including five decisions of this court. Your Honor, one only need read the Cisco complaint against Dexon to conclude that it alleges a series of related wrongful acts going well before the retroactive date. And the Traveler's Claims Made policy does not cover claims for trademark infringement, where the wrongful act is part of a series of related wrongful acts beginning prior to the policy's May 18, 2019 retroactive date. The policy also defines related broadly and in a manner acceptable to courts, including this court. So again, all one needs to do is read that complaint, compare it to the policy language. That isn't all you do. That's all you... I've got multiple... I've written multiple cases that allow... That, that recognize this matters outside the pleading concept and, and consider it. With now here on page, on addendum page five, the court says that after reciting, correctly reciting this principle, here the parties submitted several documents for the court to consider. The original amended complaints in the class action. Obviously you agree that's, that's not, that's included. That's included. Even though it's, it's a third-party complaint in the different action. It's, it's referenced in the complaint against travelers, so it's Dexon's, part of the record. Dexon's answer, the right. cyber-first policy, and letters Dexon sent to travelers regarding the coverage dispute. So every single thing that is referenced there was referenced in Dexon's declaratory judgment complaint against travelers. All of that evidence was part of the allegations of the complaint against travelers. So this was a motion to dismiss that complaint on 12b-6 because it failed to state a claim. Are you saying that this was error? To include that information? Yes. Yeah. The first, second full paragraph on page five of the court's order lays out, after reciting the principle, lays out exactly how it was interpreting that principle. It's not error for the court to have considered anything that was referenced in the complaint against travelers that we are seeking to dismiss for failure to state a claim under Rule 12b-6. And you just said all the things that were just read. That's correct, Your Honor. Were in the complaint. So and you're not challenging what the district court considered. You're just challenging the conclusion that was reached. Is that correct? Correct, Your Honor. All right. And the one thing on which... But, but then you said that, that the court considered what the, the plaintiff said it asked. Yeah. yeah, that was in those documents. In it, documents. it was in those documents. So what, why couldn't the judge consider it? We're, we're, all right. We are not arguing that the judge shouldn't have considered it because it was extrinsic to the four corners of the Rule 12b-6 motion. We're arguing the judge shouldn't have considered those letters because they violate the rule of having any probative value as set forth by the court in the Meadowbrook case. Those letters were Dexon communicating to travelers its denial that it engaged in any of the pre-retroactive date wrongful acts that are contained in the complaints against it, and that this evidence somehow creates a duty to defend. But Minnesota law is clear that these types of denials 
can only be used to influence a duty to defend where the evidence that tries to contradict the claims that are in the complaint for which a defense is sought is undisputed and insured cannot read out of a complaint an allegation uh, that uh, taking the complaint outside of coverage simply by asserting that it's not true. And this is what the Minnesota Supreme Court said about that in the Meadowbrook case. Only where actual facts within the insured's knowledge, insurer's knowledge, clearly establish the existence or non-existence of an obligation to defend, will this court hold that the complaint is not controlling. So we're not saying that the court considered from an evidentiary standpoint, things it shouldn't have looked at. What we're saying with regard to these letters is that it gave them inappropriate weight as a means of finding a duty to defend on behalf of travelers. Because these letters that Judge Loken referenced simply are letters to travelers saying, but we didn't do it. And Meadowbrook, the Supreme Court decision of the Minnesota Supreme Court, clearly says we can only consider that type of evidence, not that's extrinsic to this record, but that is extrinsic to the complaint for which coverage is sought, we will only consider information extrinsic to the complaint for which coverage is sought if it's undisputed. Otherwise, an insured cannot take a complaint that clearly pleads itself outside of coverage and bring it within coverage by making the unsubstantiated statement, but we didn't do that. And this isn't a novel concept. This is exactly what the Minnesota Supreme Court said in the Meadowbrook case. Your Honors, the only... Where do they say that it has to be undisputed? I see the footnote that you're referring to in Meadowbrook where they say only facts within the insurer's knowledge. Yeah, so Your Honor, they may not use the word undisputed, but I don't know how else you use the word actual and clearly established, which is also in that quote. To me, that can communicate nothing other than the fact that they have to be actual facts that clearly establish uh, the obligation to defend. Okay. I don't know what an and, actual fact is as opposed to a fact, but <laughs> the Dexon was submitting facts to the insurance company. So, so your, your Honor, really down to clearly establish. I think this is just a matter of semantics, but. Well, if, if, here, if, we're talking, here, if we're talking about a fact is a fact. Here is not semantics. This is page 11 of, the, of Chief Judge Schultz's opinion. Travelers ignores the fact that its duty to defend depends not merely on what appears within the four corners of Cisco's complaint, but also on facts that do not appear in the complaint, but of which travelers is aware. See Garvis. Yep. That's and wrong? That is absolutely wrong, Your Honor, because we are only have to be aware of actual facts that clearly establish the existence or non-existence of an obligation to defend. An insured cannot read out of a... You don't, you don't cite Garvis. Is that, is we, that Supreme Court or Court of Appeals? No, we, we cite Garvis in our, um, in our brief, Your Honor. We don't cite Garvis. your table of authorities. Uh, I thought we did, but uh, per, perhaps we didn't. Um, I know I'm familiar with the Garvis case, Your Honor, and uh, if we cited it, it would be for a different purpose than this. Well, but first, okay, I want to know what, oh, here it is. It's, it's Minnesota 90, so it is a Supreme Court case. Yep. But, it's prior to Meadow, Meadowbrook. 
Garvis... Did Meadowbrook distinguish it? Can you no. disagree with it? No, because Garvis doesn't stand for the proposition that an insured can bring a complaint that's outside of coverage within coverage by making an unsubstantiated statement of fact. Garvis, Meadowbrook, and all the cases that deal with the fact that a duty to... Well, that's not... Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Your Honor. In Minnesota... If you're going to consider this sort of stuff that the district court citing Garvis says it can it can consider, then there's then then the question was it accurate? You know, was it factual? Was it substantiated and so forth? That's the merits of of that's not you can't do that. It's you did it wrong. Actually that's not the standard. The standard in Minnesota is this. I just read you what the district court said the standard is. I know the district court's wrong. Well here's Garvis. Garvis says if the insurer is aware of facts indicating that there may be a claim, or if the insured tells the insurer of such facts, then the insurer must either accept tender of defense or further investigate. Agreed. We're not talking about unsubstantiated claims there. We're talking about... What do you mean by unsubstantiated? I mean, it says if the insurer... If the insured tells the insurer of the facts... How do you know whether they're substantiated or not? Well, that's up for the insured to present to the insurer facts that take the discussion outside of what the allegations of the complaint say compared to the policy language. Otherwise, Your Honor, if that were the rule, if that were the rule, we would be defending every single case that ever got presented to us because all the insured would have to do would be to write a letter and say, that allegation in the complaint, the complaint that says that I intentionally hit the person about the head and shoulders with baseball bat isn't true. No, but this, this is much more focused. We're talking about interpreting related. Actually, it's just as speculative and not as focused as the court might believe. Let's start with the basics, and I'm going to spend my last minute doing this. In Minnesota, the duty to defend is determined by comparing the allegations of the complaint against the language of the insurance policy. And according to Meadowbrook, the only time we're going to look at anything outside of that is where there are actual facts that clearly establish the existence or non-existence of an obligation to defend, merely denying the efficacy. Okay, that's your interpretation of Meadowbrook. It's I think that's exactly what Meadowbrook says. Not what Garvis said. The point I hope this court takes away from what this back and forth. What if the insured is wrongly accused? You're saying you have no obligation to defend them? Whenever an insured is wrongly accused, there's no duty to defend as long oh, as Your, your Honor, that, that has happened in numerous cases. Our brief is full of cases where the complaint alleges that the insured engaged in intentional conduct, and only in intentional conduct. And the insured says, I, I didn't do it. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't engage in intentional conduct. Minnesota courts, including the Supreme Court, have had no trouble saying there's no duty to defend that complaint that alleges only intentional conduct. And this, What's and, your best case where the insured communicated to the insurer that, no, there was no intentional conduct, the, and the Minnesota Supreme Court said, no, you still have to so, there's no <clears throat> duty to defend, even though they're claiming no intentional conduct. I'll, I'll actually do better than that, um, Your Honor. The best case is this uh, court's own decision in Sletton versus Continental Casualty, and that cited pervasively throughout our brief. Sletton involved exactly that, a claim of intentional conduct against the insured. 
the insured said, but the cause of action against me doesn't require intentional conduct to be valid. Why is it so clear in this case that none of the claims could qualify um, for defense? None of the claims can qualify for a defense, Your Honor, because you read this complaint, there's no way you walk away from it thinking this doesn't allege a pattern and practice of related conduct going back 15 years, well below the, well before the retroactive date. And not different people, not different products. Well, I think Every single. American commerce, I think, as I read American commerce, that's very debatable. Uh, well, Your Honor, uh, this court and culture reads American commerce exactly the way that we read American commerce. All these cases alleged against Dexon all involve this common theme, the use of the Cisco mark. Not in your table of authorities. What's the Kilcher? Kilcher. Oh, Kilcher. A I L C H E R. Correct. It's in there. Yep. Your Honor, I see my time is up. Although I'd be happy to continue to spar if the court would like to. Do you do you agree when the district court says that that even one unrelated action is enough to trigger the duty to defend? I don't agree with that at all. And what's your best your case contra to that? Uh, best case on that, Your Honor, is again American commerce and culture. Okay. Minnesota Supreme Court, United States Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Thank you, Mr. Spivak. Thank you. Mr. Lefebvre. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Michael Lefebvre from the Taft Law Firm on behalf of Appellee Dexon Computer, Inc. Um, I wish I was better prepared today to address travelers' actual arguments before you. Uh, I'm going to try to do my best. And the first thing I'm going to point out is the arguments that Mr. Spivak is trying to make today that somehow either the court should not have considered the additional facts that the insured provided to travelers, or that somehow he gave uh, undue weight or improperly favored those facts or made some type of improper determination about those facts, those issues were not raised below in front of the district court. At no time did travelers object to having any of that evidence be part of the record. Those issues were not raised in travelers' opening brief in this case. At best, there is a whiff of it in the reply brief, and as all three of you know, you cannot raise an issue for the first time in your reply brief, let alone when it had not been preserved in front of the district court. But let me get to the merits of the arguments to the best I can. Mr. Spivak repeatedly said that the information that we provided to travelers was denying the allegations in the complaint. At no time did we deny the allegations in our communications with travelers. Rather, we furnished them, as you are allowed to do under Minnesota law, additional facts to further clarify that the claims in the acts in the complaint are in no way qualified as being related under applicable Minnesota law. 
Well, I thought he meant you denied the allegations in the complaint in your answer. Correct. And your answer is one of the documents that you furnished to the insurance company. What? So that, isn't that accurate? That uh, our answer did deny the claims, no doubt about it. We still deny the claims. I don't understand what you mean that you My, didn't deny I the interpreted claims. Mr. Spivak as saying an insured cannot obtain coverage by simply submitting something to the insurer. For example, his example was, and I'll get to that, an intentional act exclusion. And to the extent the complaint unambiguously alleges specific facts showing an intent to injure, as in the Sletton case, an insured can't simply put a letter into the insured that says, travelers, we deny doing what they claim we did in the complaint. Why isn't Therefore, that this should be here? covered. Yeah, okay. Well, if you can't do that, then why can you do what you did here? Because if the complaint alleges relatedness, yeah. you're saying, no, it was unrelated because we have all these suppliers and these are random acts and so forth, and we didn't know that it was knockoff products. And the district court seemed to rely on that. He did, Your Honor. So why and isn't that the same as the denying an intentional tort? I would respond to it this way, Your Honor. We believe we win even based on the face of the complaint. The complaint, as recognized correctly by really Judge Schultz. You're not really the district court's re rationale, then. You're, you're saying we should look only at the complaint. The, the additional facts we provided clarifies and further confirms that there is that the complaint, as stated, does not meet the exclusion that Travelers is relying on. There is not nearly the requisite specificity required to establish that the alleged acts within the policy period are related to acts that appeared that that occurred before the commencement of the policy what period. What we're talking about is the Cisco complaint wasn't targeting the exclusion. Excuse me, Your Honor. Wasn't tar the Cisco didn't draft its complaint in order to in order to uh, fall within the exclusion. Indeed, I'm sure they would be horrified if that was the effect. I think we could debate that, Your Honor. I think we could debate that. There well, are there I mean, are situations where plaintiffs how would. Did, how how did they plead relatedness, Cisco? We, we don't think they did, Your Honor. At best, they alleged a vague, amorphous scheme in what Judge Schultz That's properly. What I thought, yeah. And, and what Judge Schultz properly did was a valid look, not at the vague term scheme. He looked at the actual allegations and he said, where, what are the specific sub objective facts that support the claim of a scheme? They're separate, independent transactions over a, a, a several year period. There was a multiple year gap where there were no allegations at all. Well, and beyond that, there, there, I'm sure there are many schemes that, that would not uh, fall within the exclusion. Correct. Correct. So you've got if the if the if the allegation by Cisco is scheme, then you have then somebody has to apply that to the exclusion. And it, we are not. My position is not that there there aren't specific allegations that could easily meet the exclusion. Uh, I'll I'll give examples that could hypothetically could have existed in this case. If the allegation was we have been manufacturing counterfeit product and selling the exact same counterfeit product ourselves for a period of years, same products, same actions, they have a much better argument that's related. That's not the allegations. We are a secondary market independent reseller 
to the extent Cisco can ever prove that we sold a single counterfeit product, we are simply a victim of the fact that there are counterfeit, there exists a large volume of counterfeit product within the stream of commerce. Cisco well, but that's not their, their allegation is that you willfully traffic this, these products and that you were put on notice by them that you were doing it and that you ignored it and you kept trafficking. And that's why the insurance company says these are all related because you were engaged in a pattern of trafficking Cisco knockoffs. The closest they come, one, they, they, make, they make some vague intent allegations. The closest they come to a specific objective allegation that would support what you're arguing, Judge. Well, is, it's not an argument. I thought that's what they were alleging. Yeah. My the close, the, 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 the most specific allegation, and, and uh, Judge Schultz asked me about this at, at the hearing. He said, what about these allegations that over the years there have been times where they have brought to your attention that yeah. they, they've discovered that you sold counterfeit product, and they claim that you didn't stop? No, we didn't go out of business. We didn't just stop doing business because we, don't, we can't detect. They don't give us the means to detect on the hundreds of thousands of Cisco product we sell which ones are counterfeit and which ones aren't. What we always respond is, okay, tell us, Cisco, how you determine the product to be counterfeit, and once we have a good faith basis to know it's counterfeit, then we will reveal to you the identity of our suppliers, our customers. They don't do that. Well, they allege willful blindness and a refusal to work with them to identify counterfeit suppliers. They do allege that, right? Yes, and, and that's been the case in all the related act cases where courts have determined there needs to be more than that. The American, the, the Minnesota case, which is directly on point, America Commerce 551 Northwest 2nd 224, involved intentional embezzlement schemes by the same employee against the same employer and the court determined, because at the summary judgment stage, not at a Rule 12 stage, that because that employee involved employed two different uh, types of schemes, clearly intentional, no one disputed they were willful, that they weren't related under the act. A mere allegation of intentionality and willfulness does not satisfy the related acts exception. And he, uh, I want to make sure I cover this. He held up. Uh, the Slatton case as an example that is controlling in this case. Slatton is completely inapposite. Judge Smith was on the panel. It involved a complaint that it involved an intentional injury exclusion, an exclusion if the complaint alleges intent to injure. There, the complaint expressly alleged that the defendant had an intent to injure the plaintiff. And the court found that that exclusion applied because of those allegations. The, the case is completely distinguishable because if you read the case, there was absolutely no dispute that the underlying allegations 100% demonstrated it was indisputable and intent to injure. The specific allegations were an orthodontist that posed as a disgruntled patient who posted a false review on the plaintiff's website saying, this plaintiff harmed my mouth. I needed all kinds of 
repair work done. No one disputed that the intent was to injure the um, plaintiff in the underlying case. The court didn't even address that issue. Recognizing that, the insured argued that under the law, it didn't matter that there's an intent to injure. He could be held liable despite there being an intent to injure. Therefore, there should be coverage. And the court correctly said, no, that's not how coverage works. Judge Schiltz did not determine that, be, that because Cisco could be held liable, or Dexon could be held liable, regardless of whether or not Cisco proved a scheme, that's why there's coverage. Rather, he made the proper determination under basic civil procedure law that under Rule 12, he could not determine at that early stage, accepting the facts in the favor of the non-moving party as he's required to do, that he was unable to make the fact-intensive relatedness determination as a matter of law. He was 100% correct, Your Honor. Absent any further questions, I don't have anything further. I have one. But <clears throat> I was surprised. The district court said quite clearly on, on page 9, citing Garvis, uh, that if, if there's, in this context, one unrelated incident, then there's a duty to defend. And counsel this morning said we challenged that. Was that issue preserved? I don't recall it being preserved, Your Honor. I would go as though I, there was any I, dispute about it. I would go even further to say that is not the law. In for one, in for a penny, in for a pound. If there's a covered claim, well, that's, the, that's what I thought, and just general, but okay. And, and I but believe he cited. How was that preserved? Because I don't see that it was. He, he cited a case. I, I believe he cited Kilcher for the proposition for that proposition. Uh, if he's if I'm wrong, he can correct me. Kilcher does not stand for that proposition. You were on that panel, Your Honor. It involved a related act exclusion. And in that case, at the summary judgment stage, yeah. this court determined that two claims were related uh, because uh, it, that it was the same insurance salesman who defrauded both the parents and the children. And this court properly rejected what has been recognized as micro-distinguishing. I'm not going to say these are unrelated because it's the exact same act. Selling a, a fraudulent wholesale policy to the parents and the children is somehow different. I think that's the right result. This is not that case. The last thing I'll add before my time is up, Your Honor, I, I did forget to mention, Mr. Spivak has mentioned that they cited to several cases, uh, specifically in their reply brief for the first time after we noted that they had not yet cited a case where relatedness had ever been determined on the Rule 12 stage. We looked at those cases. There's a reason they weren't put in the opening brief and that they weren't cited below. As I said, there are examples where you could decide relatedness at the Rule 12 stage. This isn't one, but there are cases, and the cases they cite provide those examples. Um, they're cited in the reply brief, Your Honor. Virtually every single one of those cases involve the exact same complaint. In one example, the exact same complaint was dismissed in state court for lack of prosecution and two months later filed in federal court 
and the insured tried to argue that somehow these aren't related because they're different lawsuits. And the court correctly said, wait a second. These are the exact same claims. This is the exact same complaint filed two months later. I had one other question. Uh, this are off topic a little bit, but I just wanted to uh, confirm there's a final, proper final decision here. You know, we've been critical in some of our cases about parties who agree to dismiss certain claims without prejudice in order to get finality. And I wondered if that rule applies here because I understood there were other claims in the original complaint that were dismissed without prejudice yeah, we, in order to appeal this uh, def- duty to defend judgment. Is that a problem on finality? I don't believe it is, Your Honor. We, we, we addressed the issues to make it appealable so it could be addressed, and we've reached an agreement with... Well, I know, but that's the, what our cases are about. The parties can't conspire to create finality by saying, we'll just put these other claims on hold, yeah. and then we'll appeal what we want to appeal so we can get a ruling from the Court of Appeals before the whole case is final. Yeah. Is that rule implicated here? I don't believe so, Your Honor. The, we did have other claims that what some of the claims were dismissed uh, by Judge Schultz. By stipulation we had a bad of the faith. parties. There were claims. Oh, no, that was dismissed. We made bad faith. The, yeah. the, uh, due, the indemnification claims. There were claims alleged, seeking a Correct, declaratory judgment. This decision no will. To this, indemnify. Your decision will either resolve the case or theoretically could revive additional issues, I suppose, but it, it, your decision would be final. If, if, you affirm, know, if, you affirm, dis- if you affirm the district court decision, it, it, it's final. I know that. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's the question. No, the, 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 I think the question is whether the judgment in the civil case entered on the basis of a stipulation for entry of final judgment is a sufficient indication that the district court considered the case resolved. So that it really was a final judgment, and you can't ever come back with all these other things that you thought you were dismissing without prejudice. That's the question. If you if you think the stipulation leaves you the ability to come back with your other claims in the future, then we're going to dismiss. Then, then we're going to dismiss this appeal. Yeah, I I agree with that, Your Honor. Well, which was, I mean, the, the district court, on its face, the district court's order is a final judgment. But was it genuine? And, and we have defined that in terms of whether the district court made a clear and manifest indication that the case was over. I believe he did, Your Honor. Well, it's pretty clear here the case isn't over because the... Uh the opening brief by the appellant says, well, we're going to come back later on duty to indemnify. Uh, we couldn't get that resolved now because the case is still going in the district court and so forth, or in the Cisco case. Part of it is a practical issue, Your Honor. It's, it's, a, it's a limited uh, policy, and it's a wasting policy, meaning based on how this is decided. Well, I, think, I think the practical answer is that if, that you have to be, if, if indemnity is not right, yeah. you have to be able to enter a final order with respect to duty to defend in order to allow the, the indemnification question to proceed. Uh, I think that's correct, Your Honor. I think, I think that could be right. The case law, I think, 
But I wonder would support what, that. Yeah, maybe. But why would the insurance company bring the indemnification claim in the first place if it wasn't ripe? Is my, I guess we'll ask the insurance company. It's a, it's a DJ. <laughs> That's all I have, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Lefebvre. Did the court want to address with us the finality issue? I'd like to know how you preserve this notion that that uh, on the uh, one unrelated is enough, the in for, a, in for a penny, in for a pound issue. Yeah, so I think Your Honor is confusing the Garvis-type case that talks about a complaint that alleges covered and non-covered causes of action. I, was, I haven't read Garvis. I'm just referring to what the district court, I, court said. In, in which case, then, the district court's confusing the Garvis position. How did you preserve that for appeal? We preserved it by appeal because all of the rationale for the district court's order was contained in the court's order ordering that we had a duty to defend. And we said that in every aspect, that decision is wrong, including the conclusion that if any act is arguably not unrelated, we have because, to defend the whole you, thing. You, because you appeal a judge's order, anything wrong that he ever did in the case is Your Honor, we do not have to specify in our notice of appeal that he misapplied this case he misapplied this case. He misapplied this case. Oh, no, I'm, well, talking we have about, to, I'm talking about a principle of law. Right. That, that if, if, it's if, got to be in your brief, your opening brief. And, and it, it is, Your Honor. Our, our opening brief makes the point that you have to look at the way this complaint, the underlying complaint is pled, and there's no way that you can look at the way this underlying complaint is pled compared to the way the policy defines the word related and somehow figure out that there could be one small little unrelated claim that would trigger the duty to defend. Your Honor, I do What's want to your go short answer on finality? Yeah, I do want to go on the record with regard to finality, uh, Your Honor. Two, two distinct duties involved here, duty to defend, duty to indemnify. The duty to indemnify question is not right. We don't know whether Why Dexon... Why did you bring the claim then? We didn't bring the claim, Your Honor. We, we, we were sued. They brought the... Well, I'm I sorry? Thought, I thought you brought... Oh, yeah, you're right. We, we brought... <laughs> you're right. I'm sorry. I was thinking of a different case. Yeah, no, we... Case. Different we, case. We, we brought it because we were entitled to a declaration. Well, maybe that, they sued... They guess they sued for breach of contract. Yeah. Uh, yep. Let me... Let me put yeah, they down. sued and said that... Uh, that you had... A, they wanted a declaratory judgment. They wanted that you had a duty judgment. to defend. Yeah. Right. So why... I guess that's why I was trying to ask him. What was the reason for bringing it? Yeah, so it, 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 at this point... You're saying you, you're, you view that claim as premature. Yeah. Now, the duty to defend can resolve the duty to indemnify because right. it's black-letter law. Right. The duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. There's no duty right. to defend. There's no duty to indemnify. But the contrary isn't true. So at, at this point, we have a final judgment against us that we owe a duty to defend. My question is, is if, if it is... If, there, if the duty to indemnify gets becomes ripe by the entry of a judgment in the third-party case, yep. do you think you can come back in this case? Absolutely. The reason I can come back in this case... You're then, then, then this is not a final order. In other words, you, could, you, you, could, you can challenge indemnity when it becomes ripe. You don't have to do it in this case. Oh, all right. I, I understand. Well, they're, they're the ones who would come back There's and the say, one who would... you, you need to indemnify us, and you would deny. Yeah. 
and then they would sue you again, presumably. Yeah, Judge Loken, you and I were misunderstanding what we meant by this case, not this case caption, not this case number. If if they're held liable, then then we'll look at the. He's going to be back, but it's going to be a new case. It's going to be a new case. Right. If they're held liable, everyone will take a look at the basis that they were held liable. We'll see what evidence was presented to the jury. From my perspective, hopefully the jury decided the way that it did because it decided that these people have been messing around with our products for the last 15 years. But there will be a different action with a different case number that will determine whether there's any obligation to reimburse whatever judgment they may have Well, maybe. That's what I wasn't sure. It was dismissed without prejudice, so I don't know why it would have to be a different case number. I mean, they... They could try to bring it back in the same case in the district court. I, I, th- I think if, if it avoids me having to spar with Judge Loken, whether it's a different case number or not, it might be better if it's a different case number. Yeah, well. But indemnity you, is you, preserved. I mean, it gets, it gets in, it, 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 these things all turn on the district court's intention. That, that's back to our, our case, case law in the, 19, in the 90s or even 80s. The, the governing standard is that the, the district court, and I think it's Supreme Court driven, did the district court intend to end the case? And if it intended to end the case, then even if your stipulation was based on an agreement that was without prejudice, it still ended the case. Yep. The district court absolutely considers this particular case done. That's the, the way I read its order. Exactly. The, the unripe claim has been dismissed without prejudice for someone to bring it up in a different case later, the right claim, the duty to defend, final judgment's been entered against my client. There's a money judgment that's been entered against my client for past defense costs, and there's a declaratory judgment that's been entered saying we have to defend in the future. And with regard to the other claims that somehow our position was in bad faith, you know, on that one we agree with Judge Schultz that there was no, no grounds to suggest that these hard fart arguments were arguments that were made in bad faith. If there's nothing else. Thank you, Your Honor. See anything?